Paul is speaking here in the realm of every place. Therefore, I want the men in every place, whether it's a Bible study with a mixed group in your home or a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Men, you are to lead. I'm not discouraging the women from praying. Please understand. But I am encouraging the men to take the leadership that God has ordained for you to take. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of 1 Timothy, and we move into some controversial ground today as we progress through verses 8 to 15 of chapter 2. The name of this message is The Role of Men and Women in the Church. Because this is such an important topic, we'll be camped here for about the next two weeks. When we're done, it's our hope that you'll have a better appreciation and understanding as to why God has ordained certain gender-specific responsibilities. Let's join Pastor Brogy now as we begin part one of the role of men and women in the church. We're going to discuss one of the most hottest and most contested issues today in the body of Christ. The culture is earnestly trying to convince the church how it should run itself. And the church, unfortunately, many times is listening, and because of it, we are greatly suffering. And so you turn on the television today and you see a new phenomenon of women who are teaching, pastoring churches, uh, ministering the Word of God in uh, mixed multitudes to both men and women alike. More recently, uh, the daughter of a famous evangelist at an evangelistic conference in, in Amsterdam stood before several thousand evangelists, and in protest, they turned their chairs and put their back to her. Not because they disliked her or trying to be mean and ugly to her, but because they were trying to be faithful to the Word of God. And she said to those men that if you have trouble with women teaching over men or being pastors, you need to get over it. Well, I want to tell you, there's a hot issue in our day, and we need to make sure we know and understand what the Word of God says. There are many women Bible teachers who just a decade ago taught against such thing, but today... They're running cruisers. They're teaching Sunday school classes with men and women present. And so the sad thing is, though, in that uh, having abandoned the God-given role, they are missing their high and holy calling that God does have for women. So in this series of messages, I'm going to speak not just about what women shouldn't do, but also what women ought to do before a holy God. Now, as we come to our text this morning, as you can see from our note-taking outline, it's divided into two halves. First, he addresses the conduct of the men, and then he addresses the conduct of the women. So let's first consider the conduct of the men in public worship. He begins in verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It is a structural marker that goes back to what has been previously said. And so let me review for a second, and I want to take the time to review, because I really believe that most Christians today don't probably have a good, clear handle on what verses 1 through 7 teaches. I think I could preach this sermon ten times in a row, and we would still all benefit. 
if you remember, the therefore is in light of what he said on prayer. And first, back in verse 1, he addressed the issue of the priority of prayer. He said, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. When the church gets together, it is critically important that we pray because it is in prayer that we express our humility before God. Where there is much prayer, there is much power. Where there is little prayer, there is little power. Now, as we will see, Paul is not necessarily spelling out the amount of time that should be spent in the worship service on prayer. If anything, before we're done with these pastoral epistles, he's going to emphasize that the chief role when the church gathers together for worship is to worship God through the Word, that the exposition and the preaching of the Scriptures takes precedence over all. But of our singing and our worship in song and our worship in giving and our worship in the Word, is not undergirded first and foremost by prayer, it will become dead formalism with no power whatsoever. But he speaks not just of the priority of prayer, if you remember also the diversity of prayer. Four different types to be specific, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. And we saw specifically what these four words referred to, so I'll not belabor that this morning. In addition, he spoke to the scope of prayer. He said that prayer is to be made on behalf of all men. Even those who rule in authority over us. Verse 2 says, for kings and for all who are in authority. Now what a remarkable statement in light of those who were in authority in the first century. Fourth, he reminds us of the results of prayer. Why are we to pray for all men, including those who are in authority? In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We studied last time that the role of the state is to keep law in order. That's its principal function in light of the fallen nature of man. To keep law in order, to keep a semblance of peace in the society. That's the state's primary role, and the church is called to pray for that. They are to bear witness by their prayer of their love for Jesus Christ and their concern for man. We are to pray for all who are in authority. And if we don't do it, who will? There are millions of Americans today who will go to church lost. They'll leave there unsaved. They'll never hear the gospel. They won't know how to be saved. They're much like the Pharisees of the first century who are highly religious but not born again. They have no power with God in prayer. They have no promises from God for prayer. It's the people of God, those who've been born from above, who are given all the promises. And if we don't pray, who will? And we are to pray for all men because God has a concern for all men. And as we've studied, while the church is to pray, as we do that, it results in a quiet and tranquil life. Some of the troubles from without and some of the turmoil from within will be lifted that we might be free to do that which God has called us to do. Now, when God looks on the society, when he looks on the world, he looks on the world with a view towards eternity. The divine purpose that God has for the state to maintain law and order is not so that the church can enjoy personal peace and prosperity, but that the church might carry out the preaching of the gospel. 
Why does God have a concern for all men? He tells us in verses 3 and 4. He says, this is good, that is praying, and the results that it brings. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now again, let me remind you of this repeated phrase, all men. Both the church and the state are to have a concern for all men because God Himself has a concern for all men. God so loved all men, the world, that He gave His only Son. Christ died for the sins of all men. He was a propitiation for the whole world. And He is to be lifted up that He might draw all men to Himself. And so we can pray for all men because it is God's will that all men come to a knowledge of the truth. Prayer is not based in selfishness. Prayer is not trying to get man's will done in heaven. Prayer is trying to get heaven's will done on earth. And what is God's will? Well, first and foremost, this is good and acceptable in the sight of, our, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So having mentioned the priority of prayer, the diversity of prayer, the scope of prayer, the results of our prayer, he concludes by reminding us of the basis of our prayer. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now this one, in whose name we pray, this one, who is the single mediator between heaven and earth, is the man, Christ Jesus. Now the fact that Jesus is God a doctrine that is denied by so many cults in our day. The fact that he is God is not in dispute here, though they would often appeal to this verse to try to sustain their false doctrine. As we've studied in the opening verses of this epistle, we saw that Christ is inseparably linked to God the Father as the single source of all grace, mercy, and peace. And so the divinity of Christ is not in question. The emphasis is upon His humanity, that our mediator, although equally God, became man. Because without taking upon humanity, He could not be a mediator between God and man. Because the nature of a mediator is He must equally represent both parties, and in this case, God and man. So for Christ to equally represent both God and man, He would have to become the God-man. And that's precisely what he did. And that is what Paul is emphasizing to us. And so he says here in verse 6, this one mediator, because he is unique, he is the only God-man, he came to give himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. Christ gave himself as a ransom. Now the word ransom is one of those theological words that every Christian ought to know with words like redemption, reconciliation, justification, propitiation. You ought to have firmly fixed in your mind the understanding of this word ransom. It was a word that was used in the first century Greek to describe the price paid to free a slave or a captive. And so when God says that a ransom was necessary, he's really giving us his view of man. Man needs to be ransomed because he's in a horrible state. He's enslaved and imprisoned to his own sin and guilt and under the just judgment of God. And so it was God to the rescue through Jesus Christ, giving of his own blood to ransom us, to buy us from the penalty that our sin deserves. And Paul, who is so gripped with this reality, says in verse 7, and for this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The same God 
who ordains the end, namely that all men might come to a knowledge of the truth, provides the means to accomplish that end. And the emphasis in these verses is that the means to accomplish that end is in both prayer and preaching. Now that's critically important because Paul is going to move from that means to the end of prayer and preaching and he's going to apply it to men and women in the church in the realm of prayer and in the realm of preaching. And so when Paul says in verse 8, therefore I want the men to pray in every place, that is the reason the therefore is therefore. Having addressed the role of prayer in the assembly, now he wants to elucidate on the role that men are to pray in that prayer. And there are three principles of prayer as it relates to men, though there's certainly application for women in some of these, but three principles as it relates to to how men should pray. Number one, men are to pray exercising their leadership role. They're to pray exercising their leadership role. Now, Paul stated definitely that men should pray in the local assembly. Now, he does not use the generic word anthropos that he's used a few times over already in the preceding verses, when he says all men, that God desires all men to be saved, that we ought to pray for all men, he uses the word anthropos. We get our word anthropology from it. He, in those verses, means all people, men and women alike. But now, and even the careful English reader, I think, would pick up on it, now to make it crystal clear, he changes gears and he uses a different Greek word for men. He uses the word andros that generically, specifically, only refers to the male gender to exclude all of mankind. He's speaking here of men. He's not excluding women, as we'll see from praying in the fellowship. We just studied briefly from 1 Corinthians 11 that women can pray. And he's giving them in 1 Corinthians 11 how they ought to pray. There he says, for instance, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So in giving instructions to women using the culturally relevant symbol of that century on how women ought to pray, there's an assumption that when the church is gathered together that women will pray. And so when Paul says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, I believe he's giving this injunction for at least two reasons. One, he reminds us that prayer is not restricted to simply the elders or to specified clergy, as is believed and practiced in so many denominations today. Paul affirmed the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, that we all have equal access to God. But secondly, and in this context, I believe that he's reminding us that males, men, are to take leadership when the church is assembled in the realm of public prayer. And the instruction that comes from both 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, when you put them together, is that women, when they pray in the church, are to pray in such a way as not to usurp the authority that God has given to the man. Praying with a head covered in the first century indicated that they were in submission to their husband's leadership. Now, women should not feel hesitant to pray when the church is assembled unless... They are usurping the role of leadership that God has given to the men. Now, I am also reminded here from verse 8 
that the men are not to sit on their cans doing nothing. Look, I've observed in some churches that I visited in on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and when we go on vacation, we go to church every chance we get. We want to be with God's people. We'll go on Wednesday night and we'll go on Sunday morning. And I've observed in some fellowships that the only ones who pray are women. I want to tell you, those women are out of line. And if you are a wise woman and a biblically oriented woman, you will keep your mouth closed until the men pray. The men are to be the leaders in this realm. And I see a lot of women prayer groups today, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm totally in favor of that. But why don't we have some more male prayer groups? Sometimes because men don't take the role in the leadership when it comes to prayer. But certainly, when the church is assembled, wherever it may be, understand that the first century church did not meet in a building like this. This is something, church buildings, that did not originate until about the third century A.D., he speaks here in every place. And as we're going to see, the principles that Paul elucidates in these verses don't apply over here in the local church, but over here it means something else. You have these dear women Bible teachers like Beth Moore and Kay Arthur who are arguing, hey, look, when the assembly of the church is assembled, granted I shouldn't preach, but if I'm doing a Bible conference or a Bible cruise or a Sunday school class in my church, then it doesn't apply. That is sheer nonsense, and it is a violation of the Word of God. Those women themselves, 10 years ago, taught the opposite. And now they're teaching something contrary to what they themselves at one time affirmed. Paul is speaking here in the realm of every place. Therefore, I want the men in every place, whether it's a Bible study with a mixed group in your home or a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Men, you are to lead. I'm not discouraging the women from praying. Please understand, but I am encouraging the men to take the leadership that God has ordained for you to take. Paul's point is that wherever men and women of the church may be assembled, the men are to lead. So principle one is we think about how men should pray. Men are to pray exercising their leadership role. But secondly, I learned from this verse that men are to pray exercising a right relationship with God. Again in verse 8, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands. Now, it was customary for a Jewish man when he prayed to lift his hands to heaven like this. Many times he would pray like this. Now, this thought of folding your arms like this and clasping your hands together in prayer like we sometimes do is actually found nowhere anywhere in the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's not found. In fact, the truth of the matter is, is that there are actually many postures for prayer found in the Scripture. If you want to jot a few down, 1 Kings 18.22. There's Solomon, after building the temple of God and dedicating it with outstretched arms towards heaven, the Bible tells us he prayed. Or sometimes we find God's people kneeling. Take Daniel, for instance, in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. After he had been given the injunction by the authorities not to pray, he kneels with the window open, facing towards Jerusalem, of course, which was the place of the temple. In 2 Samuel 7:18, after uh, David is told that one of his descendants will sit on his throne, but he'll be no ordinary descendant, 
He will be the Messiah himself. He will sit on your throne forever. When David hears that from his physical lineage, the Messiah is going to come, the Bible says he sat and he prayed. Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he's on his face before God in prayer. In Genesis 24, the servant of Isaac, who I assume is probably Eleazar, though unnamed, he bowed in worship before God. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah, as he uh, led the people of God into righteousness and put down the prophets of Baal, the Bible says he crouched low and he put his head between his knees in prayer. And our Lord himself in John 17, he's praying, the Bible says, looking up into heaven with his eyes open. And so since we are to pray without ceasing, since we are always to be in a spirit of prayer, you would expect that there are many in very positions on how we are to pray, whether it's with my hands on the steering wheel or washing the dishes or cutting the lawn more, uh, or cutting the lawn or on my face before God or whatever it may be. And so when Paul says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, among other things, I believe he is stating that the essential ingredient for effective prayer are holy hands. Now, of course, by holy hands, he means a holy life. When David prayed for deliverance from his enemies, he prayed, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. David is saying, at this time of my life, my hands are holy, they're clean. And so God has answered my prayer, he has rewarded me accordingly. In like fashion, in Psalm 24, he says, when he asks the question, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands in Scripture are symbolic of a blameless life, and you would expect it to be because it's your hands that are the chief bodily instrument in which we accomplish most of our activities in this life. So effective prayer then demands that I be in a right relationship with God. I must have holy hands. Paul wants men to understand that when they are to pray, they are to pray exercising a right relationship with God. But third, the Bible also teaches that men are to pray exercising a right relationship with their fellow man. Again, here in verse 8, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, then note the final phrase, without wrath and dissension. Now the words without wrath, also translated in the NIV, without anger, requires that you and I be on good terms with one another. And a person who is always having trouble with unbelievers or with believers. And I'm not talking about what a pastor is supposed to do. He is supposed to reveal false doctrine. He is supposed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. I'm not talking about standing for the truth. I'm talking about what Paul is talking about here, a person who is constantly angry and causing dissensions in the body of Christ. And instead of being a peacemaker, they are a dissension maker in the church. There are people like that in every church. They will murmur behind their pastor's back, many times trying to undermine the authority of the pastor. Or they may cause dissension in the church. Why? Because they have a heart that's filled with anger and disagreement. 
when your heart is filled with that kind of a stature, you cannot expect God to answer your prayer. Paul commanded to the church at Philippi that we are to do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, the Bible makes a distinction between positional righteousness and experiential righteousness. If you've been saved by the grace of God, then this morning, positionally, you are righteous because you are in Christ. He looks at you as justified, declared holy, saint, a saint by calling. But while you may be positionally holy in the sight of God, your experience may be less than what God is calling you to do. You are to be holy as He is holy. On the one hand, past tense, you have been sanctified. On the other hand, present tense, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, namely, your sanctification. God wants us to live out in our practice what is already true of us positionally. And so when God promises in James chapter 5, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, He's not simply saying the effectual fervent prayer of a Christian, that is someone who has positional righteousness, accomplishes much, though that certainly is required. He is saying in the context that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, experientially speaking, accomplishes much. You say, how can you know that with absolute certainty? Well, not only based on the illustration that he gives with Elijah, but because of other scriptures that interpret that for me. For instance, the psalmist said, if I regard wicked in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now we take that verse and we dump it all the time on the unbeliever. That there's a separation between God and man. But in both passages of Scripture, he's not speaking of the lost. He's speaking of the saved. That God sometimes doesn't say yes, no, or maybe. Sometimes God doesn't even hear it. Why? Because if I cherish, cling to, hold on to, iniquity in my heart, God chooses not to hear. And so whether your prayer is done on your knees, with uplifted hands, with eyes opened, eyes closed, on your face, it means very little if you're unrepentant in your heart. Effective prayer must come from me being a, in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with man. What is far more important than the posture of the body is the posture of the heart. And we would do well to make sure that we've prepared ourselves before we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. And so men, you are to take the lead in prayer. That doesn't mean you just stand up and pray. It means that when you do stand up and pray, when that is appropriate and all things are to be done in order, you do it out of a heart that is right with God and right with your fellow man. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 877- 787-7478 and requesting message 1TM4 The Role of Men and Women in the Church We have looked at the conduct of men in the congregation and tomorrow Dr. Brogy will look at the conduct of women Join us then as we search the scriptures For thousands of years no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah and it is where he will usher in his second coming. 
Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th or October the 7th to October the 17th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything.